0: Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the US. On today's show, we have Matt Cuthbert, and we'll be discussing his recent paper, Microdosing, a conceptual framework for use as programming strategy for resistance training in sport.
1: Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is proudly partners with Humac Norm by CSMI. If you or your organisation has a Biodex or Cybex, then is your old software or computer slowing you down? If yes, then check out the Humac software or computer upgrade for Biodex Systems 2, 3 and 4, and also the Humac Norm. Since 1982, over 3,000 Cybex and Biodex owners have rejuvenated the isokinetic machine they already own with the Humac system by CSMI. To learn more about the Humac upgrade, then head to humacnorm.com and select products and upgrades. Informed Performance is proud to partner with SportsCientia, an emerging precision technology that harnesses the power of AI and machine learning to seamlessly capture gait analysis in real-world conditions and provide 3D depictions of the foot during both swing and stance phases of the gait cycle. This enables practitioners to further break down analysis of athletes running and moving in multi-directional movements, their forces, their max speeds, distances, steps, and more. To get more information, head to their website, sportsyenture.com. Matt,
0: thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. Well, Matt, I've been really looking forward to this paper um, and you know, just this conversation about it, just because I think this is such an interesting topic that um, I think is really new um, and is helpful for you know people to conceptualize how we can then allocate stressors, allocate loads to individuals throughout whether it's team sport, individual sport, you know, the the applications can be almost endless. Um, But before we dive too far into microdosing and all those sorts of um, things, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about yourself, um, some of the roles and responsibilities you hold and maybe how you got there?
2: Yeah, so I'm Matt Cuthbert. uh, Yeah, I'm a physical performance coach is my uh, title Uh, for the Football Association in England. So I work with our uh, national teams, um, particularly on the women's side. So the age group I work with currently is the women's under-17s, and then we provide support to under-15s up to under-23s, and then, um, yeah, help support some of the off-pitch work and the sort of strategic development side of things that then support the senior. So it's like the full pathway that that we work with so it's mostly strength and conditioning support um with then a bit of like nutrition thrown in, like we've only got one nutritionist that covers the whole pathway. So we'll have a bit of that. Um and then work across our multidisciplinary team um, on camps when we deliver to players and like I said, some of the strategic development off off um off camps. So yeah, that's where I'm at currently. Um prior to that or Within that, I suppose I completed my PhD that was funded by the FA, so that's how I got the role initially, and then I've been employed full-time following that. So my PhD looked into microdosing, um, and microdosing as a concept was an interest to the FA because of like heavy fixture congestion within the international uh, tournaments. So It was a problem that they thought microdosing could be a solution to so, they wanted that investigating further, which is where I was fortunate enough to get the role. Prior to that, I've completed my master's uh, in strength and conditioning, working for a boys' football academy uh, here in the UK. Um, and then, prior to that, I was doing my undergrad where I did various um, different SNC roles supporting uh, university teams. So, it's it's been sort of straight, straight through undergrad, master's, PhD, we're picking up as much experience along the way as I
1: could.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And especially having all of that experience at, you know, the university of Salford, you know, especially just like such a, um, such an amazing university as well as just, you look at the list of authors on this paper. Um, and you know, you, you've got a powerhouse here for sure. Um, what aspects I guess about your master's and your PhD, um, do you feel like were the most influential in terms of shaping your thought process as it comes to athlete health and performance?
2: So, I guess like during my master's, um, it was very much like research focused. So, we had like practical elements to do that. It was a follow on from what we went through at the underground at Salford as well. Um, so, it's really good for upskilling on actually sort of the Olympic weightlifting stuff, which because Paul Comfort is one of the um, lead lecturers or leads the master's program, he's very much obviously got the research background within that there's the practical um yeah the practical aspects alongside that the run with the theory and the research profile that he's got um but then there's loads of stuff around like injury prevention performance measurement um to do with the testing that feeds into like physical profiling of players um which then boils into like the research side Um so it's yeah I guess shape my practice because, like the the rigor that they go through in terms of like easy testing protocols. You want it to be both informative for practice and relevant for research. So, it's yeah, it, that sort of influenced uh, my approach considerably. And then yeah, rolling into PhD, it's been how can the research really like benefit um, practice? I think is has been a big thing for me in that. Um, yeah like we we had a research question we wanted it to have real world application it's like the data to inform rather than to yeah and drive sort of of the change rather than actually making decisions
0: for us so yeah I guess that's how it's evolved for me yeah I mean and that's that's so awesome especially just having the um, applicability of the information that like you're currently studying within actual practice I feel like especially from the, from the world that I really come from and like the physio side of things, there's always this um, idea behind like, oh, well, like application or practice is 15 years ahead of the research or the research is 10 years ahead of practice. Um, But the reality is, you know, like there's the same goal in mind and each time that you create new evidence and then implement it into practice, it's an iterative and like recursive loop almost of like one feeds into the next, which feeds into the next, you know? And I think that having those types of experiences, I think for sure must've helped you out like tremendously in terms of also having gone through like your entirety of schooling at the same program with consistent influences and consistent feedback from the same um, individuals the whole time. I think that that must've been great Um, without getting too far down one track or anything. um, I kind of want to just dive into, you know, definitions and understanding what microdosing is. I think like, Back in 2021, you guys had put out an awesome systematic review um, that seemed maybe from like an outsider's perspective to be like the spark for this new microdosing paper. Um, But it was really more on like this idea of training frequency and um, all these sorts of things within a microcycle. Um, Providing a little bit more context, I guess, for what microdosing is, can you maybe just give us a 10,000 foot view about um, microdosing and its potential applicability to team sport?
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think as you sort of alluded to uh, previously, is that that isn't necessarily just team sports, but I think there's definitely applications across individual uh, athletes, across sort of tactical groups, um, and even like uh, just high performance athletes in the way that we've got, uh, or I'm aware of someone doing a lot of like microdosing research in ballet dancers as well, and I think that space is probably like this, yeah, space for microdosing to be applicable within that performance our um, space as well, but yeah. So microdosing for us, uh, which we defined in in the paper that you mentioned, is just the division of total volume within a microcycle across free short duration repeat or oh, frequent, sorry, short duration repeated bouts. So as you said, it was more of like a training frequency um, review than it was specifically microdosing, which was a precursor to, to the review we're discussing today. But at its most basic form, I think microdosing is just it's uh, that division of volume and the increase of frequency. Um, because we're starting to identify the fact that provided volumes are equated or volume loads are equated, then the frequency within your microcycle doesn't matter too much. So you you sort of need to go in with a plot like a plan of okay, these are the volumes that we're looking at getting. And that being progressive throughout your microcycles. But once you get to that point, actually, then you can start being a bit more manipulative and a bit more deliberate in the way that you divide those up, depending on the goals that, that you're going after. So, we've obviously divided it into various either benefits or ways that microdosing can influence um, those programming decisions into competition schedule, acute pro- chronic programming motor learning, and individualization. And then we've got a few different strands within those. But they're sort of the, the four different buckets that we think that microdosing can have the biggest impact in and maybe summarize um, all of the other areas that, that we think microdosing has an influence in or, or could potentially,
0: um, yeah, be influenced by in some respects as well. Yeah, 100%. I think the... The organization that you guys had laid out in the review paper that we'll be chatting about, I think was phenomenal, just in terms of like how it was very easily um, you know, the the information was very easily transferred, as well as there's just like you guys set yourself up like continually within each section in terms of understanding, giving um adequate background to certain variables and certain strategies as well. And so I just think overall the paper as a whole, for those listening. Um, is a honestly like a must read for any kind of SNC coach, even PT or sports scientist that's working within this field. Um, but something I really wanted to like kind of tease out a little bit was um, you guys had an awesome quote in the paper itself that I think I'm just going to read. Um, and it says, um, without providing a full picture of the potential applications, benefits, and pitfalls of the concept, practitioners are likely to struggle to navigate between effective training practices and quote, flavor of the month programming trends. And that um, is a little bit of a nod to Derek Hansen, obviously with um, some of his early work um, kind of bringing out the idea of uh, microdosing. Um, but can you just maybe give us your take on what the difference is between microdosing and some other flavor of the month programming trend?
2: Yeah, so I think obviously we've, like, we've gone into detail around like, the depth and breadth to, to be fair, of of ways that microdosing could influence your programming, um, and be influenced by some of, the, some of the periodization stuff as well. I think that comment around flavor of the month trend was that we may, if you start labeling something that, then it maybe takes away the value that um, that it could bring, whereas. It, like for some individuals, it might become it might be a flavour of the month trend because everyone's talking about it. They try it and only apply it in one sense without maybe any real uh, clear objective or direction as to why they're applying it. Um And then they might then decide, like, oh well, it doesn't work. It's not appropriate for our our environment. So it might actually then be that flavour of the month trend. But I think if you're really clear on the reason why, so like, I'm using microdosing to influence this because of these constraints or the environment that we're in. Then, at that point, it will be an effective way, and I think there's, um, yeah, an effective method of programming. I think you've then got sort of, a, yeah, a much clearer view of how you're applying it and why you're applying it. So that there's, there's so many different ways in which you could do that. Um, yeah, to, to have a positive influence on on your athletes, so but it doesn't then just become that flavour of the trends. So um, yeah, I, I think there's so many different facets to it that it means we, yeah, that we can summarise it, or it's more of like an umbrella term that will encompass a lot of different things and different influences from different research areas. That it's it's probably something that's going to stick
0: around for a long while. Well, I hope so, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, Matt, 100%. And it seems like um, a lot of it almost you, uh, like almost alluding to this idea of like user error, almost, you know, like this idea behind, like you need to, within any aspect of strength and conditioning, sports science, physio, like any of these areas, you have to have an intent for the things that you're doing, right? Um, And a lot of times it may just seem like, oh, well, like I tried this and this didn't work for me. Therefore, it's... BS, I don't want to use it for whatever reason. It's like, well, why did you implement it in the first place? Was there a problem that this uh, intervention was trying to solve? Um, Or was this something that you saw and said, I want to try that out. So I'm just going to input it into the system that may already be functioning totally fine within how you operate. Um, And so I think that it's, um, it is interesting. And I really appreciate the way that you guys put that in there is because it's like, you need to make the informed decision to implement this into your practice. Um, based on the idea of, like, you need to understand where it works, what it, where it doesn't work, you know, what it is and what it isn't before you even think about implementing it into a different area of your practice. Um, and I think that just, like, the background that you guys gave was phenomenal. I think, and who it
2: will work for as well, like, one thing that we particularly going after at England is sort of this collective individualization. Like, you might have a big group that you work with. It might only be appropriate for, like, two or three of them. But at that point, then it's, it still uh, has the potential to benefit them like tenfold compared to other methods. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd add in like,
0: who it's appropriate for as well. Um, when you guys were you know, constructing this paper and kind of setting it up, um, you talked about the idea of um, training residuals, right? And I think um, as an overarching concept, most people can probably get behind the idea of what a training residual really is. Um, But I think the kind of second layer that you guys went into is really interesting for me in terms of understanding like the three different types of like a short-term, medium-term, long-term training residual, and then what we're specifically trying to focus in on when we're implementing some type of microdosing type approach. Um, Can you maybe give us a background in terms of what those types of training residuals are and what our focus is when you're implementing some type of microdosing?
2: Yeah. So I guess with the long-term residuals, it's sort of, A lot of the like motor control and some of the neural changes that you'll make, and a lot of I guess a lot of that has the potential to have happened earlier on in your athletic career, sort of part of that long term athletic development, or part of just your general specific not general specific, that's an oxymoron, but your sort of like general preparation work that you do that creates long term change. Um, that actually, once you stop doing it, then it comes back quite quickly. It's like um, you might end up stopping playing sport um, as a kid, a sport as a kid, specialise in something else. But actually, if you go back to some of that and the skills that you learn and the motor patterns, generally, you'll be able to, it's like riding a bike, that is the analogy, I guess, is you'll be able to pick it up and get crack on straight away with it. Um, so that's those sort of longer term residuals that don't necessarily need constant work to. Um, to yeah, to either improve upon or to be able to revert back to, um, yeah. Then I guess the medium term, um, sort of includes some of the like cardio system, like yeah, or like stroke volume and some of those things that actually will take a month or two if you stop doing it or stop doing maybe specific work on that. That it'll take a bit of time to. Uh, completely start or start detraining, training And then the shorter term is sort of your strength and your power and from your sort of anaerobic work that will very quickly drop off if you do not repeatedly then applying a specific stimulus to that. So I think like when you think about sport-specific training and like the technical work that they'll, like team sport athletes are doing day in, day out, a lot of that is some of the long-term residual stuff. So, like that motor skill learning and stuff that they've just got offhand. Like you see some retired football or soccer players, sorry, um, that like regardless of how long it's been since they've trained, like you see your Beckhams or your Roonies and they can still like. So I think Rooney was involved in um, your like MLS uh, like all-star stuff. And absolutely like smashed into the top corner, like it was nothing. Like he'll still be doing stuff most days because he's coaching, but like just don't lose those type of skills. Um, Whereas then the strength and the um, the power work and sort of the the explosive side of um, how you apply force can very quickly drop off, and that's sort of the things we think that microdosing has an influence on, uh, especially during sports that have a long season where. The I guess the focus is on recovery and performance week in week out. So at that point, if you're starting to neglect some of those components, then you've got a potential increase in injury risk or propensity for injury, and then um, also a decrease in performance, which is obviously not what the goal is when when you go in throughout the season. Particularly as you get to the end of the season and it, like you've got your playoffs, you've got the more important games. Um, or you're coming up against tougher opponents. So, um, yeah, that's sort of where those residuals were at. And we probably see most importance or most application of microdosing within that shorter term. Um, But actually, for some of the medium-term stuff, like your cardio work, or if you are going through a season that doesn't necessarily end up being a focus, you might still be able to use microdosing to top that up because – I guess there's, there's some research for some like various sports where actually do you might want to accumulate like three or four hours, like picking up around my head, but like three or four hours worth of like the zone two, like the lower steady state exercise will actually kind of convince a player to do that all in one go compared to, or like divided that into like two sessions compared to actually then just as part of their general warmups and getting ready for the day you might might micro-lose and drip feed that in. Um, So they're almost putting money in the bank for when it becomes like tougher during the season. So I think there's probably some uh, level of application for sort of the medium-term stuff, but yeah, I think we see
0: most of it within that shorter-term space. Yeah. And, um, yeah, especially this, this application. Um, I think a lot of times when, when we talk about within season, um, Now, there's obviously nuance depending on the sport itself or the individual or, you know, what the qualities are. But um, I feel like so much of in-season kind of athlete management is just like this idea of like holding on to the residuals or the training um, qualities that this individual has right now, you know. And I think that um, microdosing lends itself uh, very well in terms of just being able to apply that in terms of a way in which that individual can just maintain those um, qualities and things like that. And maybe we'll get into uh, the idea of minimal effective dosing later, just because I think those um, seem to be almost um, misconstrued as synonyms. Um, but we'll kind of pencil that for a later discussion.
1: Just a quick break in the conversation with Matt. and informed performance, you may have noticed that we're launching more webinars and courses online from some of the expert guests that we're lucky to record episodes with. If you head to informperformance.com and click on education, you can see our growing webinar and course offering. One upcoming example is Claire Robertson, who we just had on the show, who's releasing the course with us called Managing Patella for Moral Pain for Athletes. We'll be releasing regular offers and new courses, so keep an eye on our education page so you don't miss out. I
0: really want to kind of pivot a little bit and just talk a little bit more in terms of the idea of periodization models. Um, I feel like, you know, they're, they're fun to discuss conceptually, but I feel like rarely do they really provide like tangible influences on outcomes in terms of, um, just like these kinds of conversations that we can always say, well, um, I like to do phase potentiation or block periodization, or I like to do this type of model or whatever. Um, whereas in reality, we're, we're just trying to make sure that we can emphasize the qualities that we're trying to um, throughout the entirety of a season or a microcycle or anything like that, um, which brings up the idea of an emphasis model um, and the idea of having primary, secondary and tertiary goals within that plan. Um, can you maybe walk us through the ways in which you can use micro dosing to influence um, some type of a emphasis style model in terms of periodization?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I guess I kind of alluded to it like previously in the way that um, you you micro micro dosing, sorry, is then like the division across your microcycle. So mm-hmm. when you think about periodization and just your planning of training, you've obviously got like top level macro stuff leading into your meso, and like the micro dosing essentially is just the programming of your microcycle, and you can manipulate it however you want so actually if you are going for this emphasis periodization model where you might spend a couple of weeks really going after your strength and then your power being more of a secondary and um, or your endurance then being that tertiary and um, then actually at that point you may want to really focus any like big blocks of time on that strength work and then your power work or your endurance work might be the stuff that is micro so that it, A has less impact on the stuff you're really trying to focus on. You may end up be- like being sort of benefiting from the fact that uh, you'll if you, if you do your strength work to begin with, and then all your power work in one go, then actually you're going to be fatigued for that power work, and therefore velocities, although intended velocity might be um, maximal which we obviously from the research know that there's benefits to that, then the actual velocity may end up being a lot slower because of that fatigue. So separating the two and microdosing your power across that week, then or that microcycle, I was talking in terms of weeks, but actually like we probably get really hit up around like microcycle being in the seven day period because we tend to go game to game, um, within a season, which, I mean, depending on how your season's structured will maybe be around a week, um, but your microcycle could be 10 days. Some of the stuff we talked about in the review issuing has talked about a mini block, which is two weeks of condensed and um, focused blocks of work. Again, that two weeks could, in theory, be a, a microcycle rather than um, rather than anything else. So, yeah, I think there's flexibility within what, what your microcycle is. Um, for us, when we go to tournaments, as if, like, potentially with the, like, the youth age groups, we only ever have a day, well, we'll have two days in between fixtures. So it's really quick turnarounds for us. There are sports, like, I know ice hockey, basketball, where you've got like, next day you've got a game. Um, well, I know ice hockey is that way anyway. Um, so yeah, you can have back-to-back games. Same with, uh, I guess, baseball as well, um, where you microcycle actually might include two or three games. And that's where it always, but it still ends up being quite short. So yeah, I think there's flexibility within that. And, yeah, so your emphasis can vary around that, I think. So, um, yeah, I've talked about sort of the strength coming in two blocks and being that that focus. If your power is focused, you may still want to microdose that because, again, you benefit from the reduced fatigue. um, But then that ends up being uh, the bulk of your work and you then may either microdose your strength alongside it or you still have strength. But it might only be in one solid block rather than across two, depending on yeah what what volumes you're going for. So I think it's probably worth mentioning how relative it all is, because I think depending on the um, training states of your athletes and like, how strong they are and things and what their training history is, actually for someone with a lo- like large training age who has to then warm up to like their loads then like, two a day for them where they've still got really high volumes might be micro-dosing as an approach because you're still dividing that volume. Um, you might do repeat two a days throughout a week depending on what sport you're in. Um, whereas like, some of the soccer players I end up working with, their training history from a resistance point of view isn't very high. They're still very like young athletes and actually the d- division for us of their total training volume is like 50 minutes worth across like multiple times across a, uh, yeah, across a micro So yeah, there's there's nuances around like how you then periodize them and what's more appropriate for, for others. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a couple of examples of how you might emphasize certain, um, characteristics compared to others.
0: Yeah. 100%. And I think like one, one aspect of this microdosing uh, concept, I guess, that I found super interesting is like this, uh, like you guys gave the examples um, from like a um, short term to long term and like the idea of um, like cluster sets. Right. In terms of the the main reason why a lot of us use cluster sets is in terms of being able to, you know, um, either repeat exposures um, to the same like higher loads uh, have greater velocities within those exposures or have um, greater loads within those exposures, generally some type of um, maximizing intent with increasing volume. Um, And I think that that's really important, especially within a microdosing kind of phase, just because um, you're essentially not only, equalizing the same number of reps that like you would get within a certain microcycle. Um, but you're also improving the actual quality of those reps or the intent behind those reps, because each time somebody comes into a session, they may be a little bit more fresh, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think that's, so I guess one of the groups of uh, yeah, things we've talked about is the acute chronic programming. And we wanted to try, and, and I think you summarize it really well there, try and highlight the facts that, Across that acute and chronic continuum, there's a number of different approaches that will look the same whether they're short term or long term, but they're just then labelled differently. And the maybe the mechanisms for like the adaptation that occurs as a result, or the objective that you're trying to reach with those, then changes with the time period that changes. So I I, I almost liken microdosing as a chronic form of cluster setting. Uh, which, again, like I said, just summarized really well, whereas um, we then talked about, like, your contrast sets then expands out and becomes like your uh, undulating type of training. So um, we've tried to, yeah, highlight the fact that no matter how you look at it, whether it's acute or chronic, the picture looks similar. It's then just the mechanisms or the underpinning
0: theory or the label that then might change. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's uh that's some gold right there, Matt. I love it. Um, so you guys can kind of like used, uh, micro dosing as a method for honestly, a bunch of different performance enhancing concepts, right? Um, I feel like within the audience of our listeners, I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with the idea of, you know, post activation potentiation or post activation performance enhance- enhancement, excuse me. Um, but I really thought that the idea and like the, the concepts that you guys used from the um, resistance priming discussion was super intriguing. Um, Could you maybe just talk a little bit more about what resistance priming is and then how you can implement some of the concepts you talked about in the paper within um, kind of some type of microdosing implementation?
2: Yeah. So I guess this almost links back to that acute chronic spectrum where you've got your post activation potentiation, which happens like within seconds of whatever stimulus is given. Um, there's a paper that we referenced within uh, the review that Bozovich's um, group has done, where they really highlight the difference between PAP, so p- post activation potentiation, and then PAPE, post activation performance enhancement. So that's a really good paper to sort of separate the two out. Um, so I'd say PAPE is a more chronic version of PAP, where it will happen over a few minutes. Uh, I can. I'll talk about like the application of that in a second, and then priming is almost the chronic version. It's like the next step along, and um, so that can happen over depending on the athletes that you work with, but like six to twelve hours, um, roughly. But I mean, depending on where like the athlete strength levels are, will then depend on like the time frame But there's still a lot of research to be done in that space to to really be a bit more accurate with that and. Who it benefits, who it doesn't. Like it tends to be, um well, I say it tends to be. So within the, like the research sort of says that stronger individuals get the like benefit from that rather than weaker individuals. How that's then summarised because you've got to uh, delineate them somehow. It's done off like percentage of one RM. Um, so actually, depending on the exercise. It, it might, there might, or there might be some exercises that are more appropriate for those of, of their like sort of weaker, um, say that with their quotes, um, individual. But yeah, I, I see it as the like chronic version of post-activation performance enhancement where you apply a stimulus, you may get a small amount of fatigue from that, a bit like your chronic fit uh, your, your classic sorry fitness fatigue model. You apply the stress, you get some fatigue and then you compensate or super compensate from that. Um where you get an elevation in performance so yeah the time frame is sort of like six to 12 to maybe 18 hours uh post and the, i guess the difference between the time frames is then just the load or the volume load that is then applied um so it always needs to be a high load is just then the volume so you might do one set of whatever exercise to get a pay effect whereas you might do three or four sets six hours prior or 12 hours prior to get the priming effect. Um, even with them, I think we, we view it as like a lot of the research in priming has been done in reference to match day um, to try and improve performance. But for us, um, well, I guess it depends on the sport uh, to some level, but I think it, the research highlights that you only get an improvement or a, um, enhancement in performance for like two or three reps of a like maximal sprint or um like counter movement jump or something. So actually we view it more as a potential tool to enhance to enhance training again. Um the way that we talked about with power where actually you're maybe going into it with less fatigue, the velocity that you then move at or the yeah the power you're producing within those movements. Um, is greater than it would have been if you, like, put it all in one one hit. Um, this is maybe another way in which you consistently increase the intensity um, that training is performed at, that you're then getting a greater chronic increase in adaptation. Um, so that's probably where we see it more, because I think there's too many variables within a match performance for it to actually have enough of an effect. And I say that maybe it might be applicable to some sports, like right? individual sports, 100%, I think like you may get it from performance, but for match and team sports, I think it it starts to get a bit like, yeah, you might get it for the first couple of reps of like an American football game. Um, but beyond that, like those last first, I mean, they last for a few hours, but I mean, an actual game tonight is 60 minutes and you're not going to get, continuous benefits from that in your final quarter compared to your to the first quarter so yeah i think it's definitely one of those where we want to yeah try and increase the intensity of training consistently so that the chronic adaptation then occurs
0: yeah and i i think that that's such an interesting point too and also understanding that um you know some of these sorts of um you know, priming drills, whether, whether our target is, uh, you know, post activation potentiation or post activation performance enhancement. um, A lot of these things, um, like you can, you can derive those benefits from a multitude of different interventions, right? It's not just an isometric mid-dipole, or it's not just a counter movement jump that can implement or improve that kind of performance. You know, it can be sprints, it can be jumps, it can be bounding. There's evidence to support a multitude of different ways in which you can um, get to those enhancements. And so I think it's Quite interesting to dive more into like understanding this idea behind, um, you know, if we're if our goal is to improve something and that thing is a high intensity output, like a sprint, well, you know, why don't we just do a couple more sprint exposures, you know, earlier on so that we can enhance that performance later on? Um, not only are we, you know, priming the nervous system like these mechanisms are implying, but we're also getting more reps doing the thing we're trying to get better at in the first place. Um, and I just think that's a it's a very interesting concept to apply to a whole different uh, host of applications.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think also, like, if you you're like you're you training on the pitch every day, and I, I don't know with other sports how much like, like training load and like number of sprints and like the distances of that. Like, we do it quite heavily uh, in like, with our players, uh, where they'll have GPS units on like we'll monitor loads as they, they go through the, like each microcycle um their clubs do it we get the information from their clubs we pass it on so that they're not getting like huge spikes but if you're planning on getting a certain amount of sprint distance on a on a day then actually if you can enhance the speed or the the intensity of each of those reps um yeah you're gonna get a greater adaptation long term um so yeah, I think it, it's that potential to to influence like the way we perhaps do it from a post-activation performance enhancement perspective is that's a lot of fees. Um, <laughs> we will then, uh, like we our training sort of preparation going into it will be like we have individual prep as a sort of time for the players to get themselves ready, get themselves loose, like traditional like pre-activation as people like to call it. Uh, then we have team preparation where we'll do the high load of pitch work, which will then hopefully, depending on the group that you're with and the strength levels and stuff, will then have that pay effect for when we go out on the pitch and they perform those couple of sprints. So it also then yeah, works into the day for us quite well in how that's
0: applied. Yeah. Mm. 100%. Um this kind of lends itself into like the idea of like this um, uh, post-activation performance enhancement um, or any other kind of resistance priming that we've been talking about. But you guys also touched on this idea about um, the repeated bout effect um, within whether it's microdosing or just training as a whole. Um, And the way I tend to explain this to other people is like, you can have like this like bro science way of saying it. Well, it's like, well, I did five by five sets of squats or whatever on Monday. And then I was sore Tuesday and Wednesday but then I did the same load and intensity, uh, the next week. And then I was only sore on Tuesday. Um, but you also brought up like some evidence that I thought was super interesting and that the repeated bout effect may not solely just be task specific of like you squat heavy one time. And then the second time you squat heavy, um, then it's the same task. So you have less like soreness, but you guys kind of brought in some ideas of interventions or implementations within sprinting or other activities. I don't want to steal your thunder too much, but Um, Can you maybe go into some of those implementations in terms of the use of the repeated bout effect? Yeah, definitely. I think
2: like we get quite, or maybe this is a generalization, but I feel like we sometimes get quite caught up on like exercises being specific and like rather than actually like what the muscle or what the energy systems being used are, um, are actually doing. So I think like the repeated battle effects is most evident, it happens with like, eccentric concentric movements, but actually, it's probably most evident as a result of the eccentric portion of that. Um, or it's certainly been shown and is exacerbated by eccentrics because of sort of the um, the after effects and damages, um, and the stimulation it, it can have. Um, so yeah, I think like the idea behind that eccentric action is like it's lengthening of the of the muscles um it's maybe a bit more mechanical than neural but um that's probably going beyond my uh my area um of all my knowledge area so but with that i think that that's the specific i uh, we talk about it to uh coaches all the time in the fact that okay yes this might not look like soccer but within soccer these things happen on a muscular level so uh, the same with sprinting like actually the, like the best way to protect from sprinting is uh, sprinting because it's a, a the action is is specific but there's elements of that and muscle actions that are re- included that you can really uh, exacerbate and really uh, hone in on through other means and actually yeah using that repeat about effect may then have a protective effect for uh, other ex- exercises that may utilize the muscles in the same way like your muscles don't know whether you're pushing like if you're in a squat whether like you've got a barbell on your back or you're pushing against a, an opponent like it just knows that it's exerting force across a whatever plane that it's exerting it so yeah i think understanding the specificity of the adaptation that you're going for then crosses with actually
0: then different actions as well. And um, it's probably where we see that. Yeah. And it, it's like this idea of, you know, you are, um, you're applying this more like general type stimulus, right. But the, the responses are always, or the adaptations are always going to be specific. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's, um, there's a physio or PT in the States who works a lot with high level athletes. The name's Eric Mera. And he just uh, came out with a blog post talking about how, like, the said principle always applies, right? Everything that you're doing is always going to be specific yes. to, like, the thing that you are doing, right? Um, and it's just very interesting, though, of like, so often people are quick to jump to something that looks like the sport, but maybe doesn't load the individual like the sport. And it's like, what are the, what are the, what do you want to get out of this? Do you want it to, like, have the same kinematics or do you want it to have the same kinetics? Because, They're going to oftentimes largely be different unless you're just doing the thing or playing that sport, you know.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think when it comes to some of the like the actions that are sport-specific, then it's when you go outside of them, and or like and that's where like injury is probably more uh, prevalent when you like you challenge outside, like when the load is suddenly a lot more than you perhaps have experienced within the sport, or it's happened in a different position. So that's where then almost that experience or that training when you you're overloading it in
0: different ways maybe has uh benefits to it as well i think from a from an understanding in terms of like going back a little bit more specifics uh to microdosing um i could see you know let's say you you print out your like weekly training sheet and for somebody um who you're using some type of microdosing approach with um, someone could look at that paper and just be like oh my goodness like they're training four times a week with practices skill sessions and two games within that week you know how is this training frequency not making them burnt out um, or how are they not so sore and going into each session um, can you maybe unravel some of like the ways in which you'd explain that to either um, another coach or even the the clients that you work with
2: yeah, definitely. I think it's just uh, re- like reiterating the fact that like you're doing less more often, so that actually, yeah. I guess there's this almost fits into the um, like the player autonomy aspect that we've sort of discussed in the review of because we know that there's no like statistical difference or like no meaningful difference between the frequencies that you do. As long as the volume's achieved, then actually, if that suits the individual better, then like you're going to get great buy-in. The intent's going to be greater. Whereas actually, if you've got a client or an individual who or a a coach who goes, "Hang on a second, like this doesn't seem right," or "This seems like a lot." Actually, if the player thinks that, then you have the ability to adapt and uh, to change it based off. yeah what their self preference is or how they like maybe react to uh to that programming style um because like I say, if you get a greater buy in you'll get greater intent, and they'll probably improve compliance as well um because they will be more willing to do that so yeah I think I explaining the fact that they're not doing any more than they would have done in a traditional sense, but actually if they uh more comfortable with that traditional like way of approaching it providing it's still appropriate because i think we've still got a guardrail performance at the end of the day um and if that would mean that going into a fixture like the two fixtures a week or whatever um fatigued then like we maybe need to step in or taper it so that they are will do the frequency that they're like wanting to do but the majority of the volume or the greater proportion of volume is done further away from match day um, so that like they're still primed they're still ready to perform but they've still got their preference of number of times a week and it, it fits for them so yeah it allows a greater amount of flexibility which will hopefully improve how they
0: perform the, the program that you prescribe to them yeah and it's also like this um, this idea of it's um, it's not so much a um, application in terms of like, okay, for the next three weeks, we're going to try a microdosing cycle. You know, you can apply it in that fashion for sure. Um, but it's also like the the understanding that your paper provides for a lot of readers is this understanding that um, as long as like volume is equated throughout a certain microcycle you know, like however you divvy it up is, you know, however you divvy it up. And so one week somebody could just say, you know what? I'm working out, or I'm training from a resistance training perspective. Tuesday and Thursday. I know I have a match on Saturday, but that's just how I want to do it. And then next week, maybe they're like, "Oh shoot! I was actually a lot more sore in like for multiple days after that session. So maybe I'm going to divvy it up, and instead, I'll do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I'm just going to do half the volume. Um, or it could be something that I remember you had mentioned that honestly, like gave me a light bulb moment uh, when you were chatting on the Pacy Performance podcast was. Um, like this distribution of uh, volume doesn't have to be even either. You know, you can do like a 25 minute session or something like that on Tuesday, and then you can do like a five to 10 minute primer on game day, you know, or something like that. And so I think that those ideas are really helpful just for the listeners to kind of understand.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that idea of it almost like we fall into the trap of a microcycle in seven days. You almost fall into the trap of, all oh, right, we're dividing this volume. Let's do it equally um and or let's split it it across um like body parts rather than doing like a whole um yeah your total body so you divide it almost by sets so you still do your full body program each day but you're just doing less sets compared to actually actually doing right okay we'll squat on this day we'll bench on this next day and dividing the volume up that way um which actually, for some individuals, like I sort of mentioned before, where if you've got a really high training status, you've got a warm up to doing a 200 kilo back squat or whatever. Like some of these American football, rugby players, they have to spend that time doing the warm ups. If you have to do that repeatedly across four days, then that's going to increase your volume significantly. Even though they are warm up sets, like by the time you've got there, you've still done a volume of work. So that might end up influencing how you divide up your training program because if you're trying to do that repeatedly across four days, yeah, you've increased your volume. They're probably going to get bored and it's like going to be like training monotony um, is going to increase. So you might then actually chunk your pro- program into, okay, we're doing lowers across these two days. We're doing uppers across these two, um, depending on how that then works into game day. And like you said, actually, you might front-load your week and then taper it across so that you can benefit from that post-activation performance enhancement or the priming aspect. Um, Yeah, so you can manipulate it. And then this almost comes back to what we said at the start of just being really clear on your objective and the reason that you are using it, um, which will then just help with that that planning um, so it isn't just, oh, we'll equally divide everything across our seven days um where you're not then maybe getting some of the like detail
0: or some of the nuance
2: that you potentially could be.
0: yeah and it, i feel like that even brings up the the concept or the idea from um the this this the field of sports science right like this field is very new and i think that a lot of times because there's new tech that comes out there's new ideas that are brought up um, an outsider's perspective can essentially just be this idea of like, oh, well, like it's such a new concept that like, they don't, there's no rigor within that. So they're just like doing whatever they want because it seems fancier, it seems fun or new. Um, but the reality of it is, is that like, like it's in the name, right? You're just applying the scientific method to sport, right? That's what sport science is. And like the basis of all of that is like, you start with a hypothesis. So like, what is your intent behind the thing that you're trying to deliver? Um, and I think that it's, it, it can be quite interesting from other people's perspectives in terms of like this idea of implementing, um, new ideas or new frameworks. It's like, yes, I mean, this is how you push the profession forward. If you test your hypothesis, you know, you come in with the understanding that, you know, you're trying to, uh, disprove the null or you're trying to prove the null, depending on whatever um, happens, you know? And then from there, you just continue to iterate and iterate. And I think um just that idea behind like having that intent behind what you're doing having a hypothesis and um really mapping things out just in my head just makes so much more sense for this implementation of anything it could be microdosing it could be new technology it could be anything but um i just i just find that very interesting
2: yeah and i think along those lines as well it's probably worth considering like you talked about hypothesis there and whether like you know law is yeah, was it effective or not? But actually, like most things, especially with the players that I work with when they've not got a great training, it's like most things could work. It just then depends on the magnitude of like. So, obviously, in a lot of research papers now, you start to get effect sizes and actually an idea of like how big a change was there, not just was there a change or wasn't there. So, it's definitely worth considering that. Like, if you are st- if you're getting small a small effect size across three or four weeks, then that's it's still an improvement. And if you then add that together across multiple three or four weeks across your long season, you're ending either in a better place than you started in season, which is maybe unusual. It's maybe not, but actually, you've certainly not been detrimental to to your athlete by just making small improvements. Um, so yeah, I, I like. Yeah, really buy into that. And I think it, it's definitely worth considering the magnitude and the time frame that you're you wanting to apply something over or wanting to get improvements over, or just maintenance, actually. Like, if you maintain across a, like, 40-odd-week period, like some of the um, sport, team sports have in season, then, like, you're potentially winning compared to other individuals who might be detraining over that same period.
0: Yeah. Spoken uh, spoken like a true PhD, adding the nuance into that conversation. I, I appreciate that, Matt. Um, well, we've got a little bit of extra time left um, just to dive in. I think a, a question that I try and ask as many researchers on these kind of um, paper-specific episodes of Research Impact, um, and this is where I think we can kind of dive into some of the other topics of this paper, but um, oftentimes I think this whole podcast is kind of a great example of like what people should take away from this paper, right? Um, but in your idea or in your opinion, what shouldn't uh, people take away from this paper? Like, what are some things that would be either um, a misrepresentation of what microdosing is, a misunderstanding, or some other poor implementation of you know what this concept can help with?
2: Yeah, so I guess
0: we, so. Within the paper, we've described that,
2: and uh, you've mentioned it earlier around minimum effective dose, not well being missed. Yeah, misconceived to be synonymous with with microdosing. Um, So, like that's something again they should take away from that. But, like, yeah, there is a bit of. I think there is sometimes a bit of confusion, and there has been a couple of papers published where it has been used synonymously. So, I definitely just squash that. Like, I think you can microdose, or you can try microdosing a minimum effective dose. You can also microdose a maximum effective dose and have that planned overreaching aspect. Um, so there's definitely a full continuum that uh, you can go through, that, like my training zone, as we've we've called it. Um, what in terms of what people shouldn't take away, um, I don't think microdosing is necessarily still the be all and end all. Like we've talked about, flavor of the month trend. Um, there's going to be time periods within your season or across a career where microdosing isn't appropriate or isn't appropriate for everyone at all times. Um, I think it's just another tool that has lots of, like we've talked about lots of different benefits to it, but there actually might be some drawbacks with some individuals or within some sports, like with your individual. If we like go away from team sports for a second and like focus on like individual athletes or tactical groups or uh, anything like that, there might be times where you go, you know what, we're just going to go for a traditional like type approach. We have the time to do it. We want to increase the amount of loads um, within one session that they're doing for whatever reason. Um, So, yeah, like going across that general preparation, traditional general preparation might actually be the right thing at the right time for them. Um, So, yeah, I think it's another tool that we can use and has – potentially loads of benefits off the back of it but again there might be some, some withdrawal like yeah some issues that that may arise or just maybe inappropriate for, for certain groups so um, definitely keep it uh,
0: as a something in the back pocket that you can use at the right time yeah man well first off thank you so much for hopping on and sharing all of like your insights and research um, around this topic I think This will be exponentially helpful for a lot of our listeners, um, being in certain areas similar to yourself, whether it's professional, semi-professional, collegiate sport, um, in various roles and things like that. So I think that, um, just having you on has been awesome for all of our listeners as well as myself. Um, but given, you know, your understanding of the population that we have in terms of our listeners, um, knowing that it's surrounded by sports scientists, strength conditioning coaches, physios, um. In your opinion, for these research unpacked episodes, who do you think we should have on next? Oh, that's a great, Shah. I mean, I've been
2: suffered through and through. Um, like, there's obviously so poor comfort around some of the Olympic weightlifting. uh Speaks really well. Uh, John McMahon is someone. Who else? Who was, who was on our paper as well? Um, and he. There's a lot of research around force plate uh, analysis and uh, like data collection around that um so yeah he'd definitely be someone interesting to get on knowing sort of the full process start to finish around not just then collecting the data but how it's like, visualized and how it's then interpreted and fed back to clubs um whilst not necessarily working at a club himself you need to be quite explicit so it's not misinterpreted and um, so yeah he'd be another good individual to get on and then um, someone else from Salford, because I'm very biased, would be uh, Nick Rickley um, from like maybe more of your physio um, type work, but he's done a lot of research into like hamstring strain injury. That's what his PhD was in, and some of the application of strength and conditioning in support of that. Um, so again, he'd be a very interesting uh, person to, to listen to.
0: Awesome well paul john and nick we're coming for you um so uh matt just closing things out um for anybody who really resonated with what you're doing in terms of your research as well as just you know how you've uh, delivered some of this information um how can people best either reach out to you connect with you get in contact any of those sorts of things
2: yes yeah, it's, it's like twitter is usually the best well oh, x as it's called now um it's yeah. like usually a good method so at M um, underscore Cuthbert fifteen is the uh, is the handle on that, uh, and then LinkedIn as well is usually a pretty good one. So hang on that down as Dr. Matt Cuthbert or Matthew Cuthbert, in the two. Um, I might have full name myself. Um, so yeah, like yeah, LinkedIn or Twitter usually, um, and like you've experienced, if you don't get a response straight away, then don't be afraid to pester because <laughs> I, I do get around to replying eventually
0: exactly yeah first-hand experience and that was not a was not a uh, uh you know somebody that wanted to let go this is an awesome conversation and um yeah man i really appreciate you having uh the time to you know hop on the podcast and hopefully we'll uh be seeing more future research coming out from you guys
2: yeah for sure i've really enjoyed it so uh, thank you for asking me to, to be involved